from a personal perspective, it was the transition, I think, from wanting to be the technical expert in the room to actually caring more about what difference you could make in collaboration with the people that you're with that caused my mindset to say, actually, that is a job I want to do. And a little bit more than a year in, so I'm, I guess, one of your newbies in the context of this podcast, absolutely loving it and feeling as though I want to get out of bed in the morning. I want to go to work. I want to make a difference. I, I really enjoy that and I'm really enthused as to driving the business forward and helping the people around me is, is my main motivation. How do you harness purpose to restructure and to grow businesses and reinvent yourself along the way? This is the conversation I'm having today with Andy Morris, CEO of Sirencester Friendly Society, which is a UK-based mutual financial services provider. So Andy started off in investment banking, where he took a CFO role that he thought was there to grow the Middle East and Africa. He ended up having to restructure and sell off that business in a very difficult economic context. He shares how he managed to get CEOs to coalesce around a vision that they would deliver on, even though they didn't want that vision in the first place. It wasn't their vision. Uh, he also then looks at that transition where he left the corporate banking world and went into the mutual um, field, not knowing exactly what he was letting himself in for, finding it really resonated with his values and ended up realising that he didn't just want to play the CFO level, which has been his career goal for all those years, and he ended up becoming CEO. And we get into the story of the shifts he had to make to do that leap. And then we look at the future. Andy's got a business which is over 130 years old with very set ways, successful business. And yet he wants to transform it, dynamize it. And we look at, well, how does that work? What obstacles has he encountered? And what are the lessons you can learn for any leader that wants to take uh, an established business to the next level? So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andy Morris. Hi Andy and welcome to the show. Richard, great to be here. So thank you for joining me today. I'm interested in this conversation because I know you've spent many, many years in financial services in all sorts of parts. You now are Chief Executive of uh, Siren Sister Friendly, uh, a UK-based uh, mutual uh, provider, mutual company. And for that, you've, you've done a whole load of interesting things, including being involved with RBS in the mid, in Middle East and Africa, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, and then you trans transitioned into the mutual sector, thought you were going to be CFO and ended up in the chief exec role. And so it'd be interesting to talk about that as well, as well as your ambitions to dynamize the sleepy, possibly old-fashioned world of the mutual. And it'd be fascinating to get your perspectives on you, what that means, right? Coming in, wanting to create growth. I think you've got a plan to double the size of the business over the next few years. So let's dive straight in if we can uh, and go back into your past, because I know that one thing that most, any leader really, it's never on their top list of priorities, <laughs> is selling and closing businesses uh, laying people off, having to go through all that complexity. And I know you did it at quite some scale in your career with a, a project in the Middle East and Africa where you had a, around 2,000 staff that were going to be affected by this project. So let's just kind of perhaps if you can just set the context for that. And I guess my question with that is, you know, when you told you had, you, you told that this was what you had to get, be getting on with, you know, what were your thoughts and where did you start? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much for setting the scene, Richard. And 
putting myself into that situation, the time I got the job accepted, there was something called decoupling, where the emerging markets were allegedly going to be separate to the Western markets, which is in 2007, eight. And so when I took the role on, it was actually sold to me as a growth role. And that although there were all these problems in Europe and the US, the emerging markets would, would still motor ahead and they had this big growth engine. So I took the job as the CFO for mm -hmm. the Middle East and Africa for, for RBS on that understanding. And it crashed within a matter of about three days of getting there and it all came tumbling down. I was, I was going to make a joke and say it all changed on day <laughs> two, but I got it wrong. Yeah. It was actually day three. Um, <laughs> so very much. It was a, so from a personal perspective, a total mindset shift. I had relocated country. I'd taken the wife and kids and, and sort of it was with that in mind. So yeah, it was, it was absolutely a complete mindset challenge for me to adjust to. How did that then manifest itself? Well, RBS at the time had bought ABN, Dutch Bank, and they both did similar businesses. ABN had big geographical reach. RBS had depth of product. So the idea was bring those two together and combine them and you'd have a very large global bank. But obviously they were both in the credit markets and when the credit markets collapsed, they both went down with it. So instead of doubling up and growing, it doubled up and crashed even bigger. In that context, I was taken on the wow. first CFO role. So for me, it was, a, it was a sort of big step up. But of course, you're then faced with the government stepping in to bail out RBS. And then you have a mandate coming down from sort of the head office, yes, but ultimately from the UK government to say we need to divest on these businesses and we need to get money back for the taxpayer. So instead of growth and delivering profit and dividend, you're then into a sell-off, reduce down and try and maximise returns, but in the sense of not creating bad publicity. So I was part of the team, so I wasn't CFO, right. CEO, I was the CFO. But to be honest, they had individual CEOs of each of the businesses. So it ended up coming down to the COO and the CEO being the glue that actually made each of those right. leaders talk to each other. Because the other problem was none of them really mm. wanted to talk to each other. So you had a pretty dysfunctional team at the same time and trying to get them to coalesce behind what we now needed to do, which is a total shift of strategy and sell that message through mm. to the sort of two, two and a half thousand people that we had at the time who were all faced with the same uncertainty that, that everybody faced in financial services at that time. It was a massive challenge. So let's just zoom back a second. So that you said you had a massive mindset shift that you had to achieve there on day three. How did you do that? Because, yeah, you said you, you'd moved home, you moved your family, you're ready to kind of make big things happen, uh, go for the growth. And then suddenly you were, I don't know, it must have felt like you'd run off the edge of the cliff like Roadrunner, right? And suddenly it was all... It was all downwards yeah. from here on. How did you kind of, how did you manage to yeah, so it's, It sounds a bit strange, but actually the fact that I hadn't got into a mode of working, yes, I had expectations. Yes, I thought I would be doing something, but in reality, I hadn't actually got used to being on the ground and doing the job. So what the job was, was fundamentally different to what I thought it was going to be. But in a sense, I therefore just got used to the new one as opposed to, having something that then changed right. around me. So I think, in fact, the upheaval and the relocation and the totally different environment I found myself in meant that it was actually easier to then say, oh, by the way, your objectives are completely different. So for me, the transition was already happening anyway. The change was already there. So it was more a case of saying, well, instead of my objectives being these, then how these? And they are very different, but a lot of things were very different as well. Yeah.
Got it. Okay, so you you kind of got used to this new role, and then you said that you had a whole bunch of different in-country CEOs, I guess, who didn't want to speak to each other. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, yeah, how did you how did you kind of help along with the other group level individuals that you mentioned? How did you kind of navigate that situation, bring them together or get them speaking or was it bashing their heads together? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you imagine you have there the ABN CEO who was running the office, you had the RBS investment banking CEO who was coming out there with that growth agenda. You had trade finance, which is sort of more meets sort of SME type or certainly mid-sized businesses they were lending to. So a very different proposition. And each of these people, I think, had operated in their own businesses and didn't really talk to each other particularly. But then you had to kind of coalesce people around that. So certainly speaking personally, that was a lot of one-to-one -one relationship building to get to understand the challenges they now faced from a finance perspective, yes. But all of them, obviously, the finance person in a crisis becomes one of the most important people you need to talk, speak to is the reality of life. So that meant building those relationships. But more importantly than that, once we had decided what the right strategic direction would be, was to get people to coalesce around that. And I think the initial uncertainty of what on earth were we going to do and look at all the options, that was really difficult. Very different opinions in the room, big egos in the room, and those people were going through the mindset shift of saying, well, this has worked fine. Why I've built this business from nothing in 10 years. Therefore, why should I have to adjust what I do? And the reality is mm. the world's changed. So that was a key part of the challenge. Going through those strategic discussions created a lot of uncertainty, a lot of bad angst. But once we had concluded that the viable option was selling most of the business, and actually the only real outcome that was going to work was we all go together and sell the business together. And at the end of it, yes, we're out of a job, but hopefully you can sell it for a decent amount of money, realize that and actually preserve some of the business that's been built up, even if you as, an, as a leader aren't going to have a job. Mm -hmm. And the reason I emphasize that job piece is I think it's very important. And also when you are selling the message through to large numbers of people who are feeling similarly uncertain, the commitment to say that you will do your best to sell the business and in so doing preserve people's jobs. But by the way, I'm in it just as much as you are and I will face losing my job at the end of this. And whereas we're going to try and preserve yours, there's kind of no nowhere to go from a point of view, each of the leaders there. That gives you an authenticity, I think, yeah. that people believe what you're then saying because you've got as much skin in the game as it as they have as opposed to some of the situations you right. see where perhaps a consultant would come in and say, we have reviewed the business and what we think needs to happen is you need to halve it. Oh, thanks very much. Bye-bye. They don't have that same skin in the game. Yes, you're an advisor. So being someone who was going to lose the job at the end of yes. it meant that you got a lot more buy-in from the people you were talking to as a consequence. Mm. Yeah. Got it. You're right in there with them on that. Yeah. You said you had the skin in the game and, and I guess you were casting a vision, which is also kind of slightly heroic in a sense, right? Which is we're going to do our best, even though we're going to probably, well, in terms of being in this business, we're not going to be there at the end. And so when you had those CEOs, you were trying to, you know, you're building the one-to-one -one relationships and then trying to get them to coalesce. Yeah, I guess what what advice would you give if somebody else in a similar situation, right? And Because CEOs, yeah, they're probably, as you said, they've built their business up. They're quite happy. They don't necessarily want to 
work in a team possibly, right? They, they, they've been the, the, the head honcho and suddenly they're in a situation where they are going to have to get around the table. What advice would you give, you know, your, perhaps your younger <laughs> self or somebody else who's about to go through that process? No, absolutely right. And yeah, I found it personally massively challenging and, and in no way did I make the right calls all the time or had the right conversations. And, and there was a lot of friction. If I think of the retail business that was there, which involved most of the people as well, that had been built from scratch over 10 years by the individual who was very used to leading it. So I built up resilience, much used word. What did that mean? I got a, a lot of shouting and swearing and <laughs> all of that sort of thing to my face, which it was quite hard not to take that personally. And sometimes I did mm. take it personally. But on reflection, if I'm looking back then, it's it's this is the frustration of somebody who is being forced to do something they really don't want to do and against all of their judgment and all of their, their effort. So how did I then get to a place alongside my colleagues? It was a case of saying, you've built this business up. You can preserve this business. And the best way to do that is make it attractive to an external buyer and package something together that is going to preserve what you've done and find someone who is willing to do that. So yes, keep people's jobs as far as possible, mm. preserve the business that you do. And the senior management are inevitably in that context going to lose their jobs. However, you can maintain a legacy if you like. So for somebody like that, I think the legacy point was very important. From a personal perspective, it's having a thick skin so that when someone's ranting and raving, make sure they do it with just you in the room and allow them the space to do that in the context of the individual concerned. And I think once you've gone through several iterations of that, you know that you're listening to somebody and you emphasize, try and empathize as best you can with their situation. But ultimately, we worked quite closely together over a period of 18 months and we ended up going into pitches to prospective buyers of the retail business. And by the end, of it, we actually got on quite well, which on looking back was quite a surprise <laughs> because the start was so bad. You think, <laughs> how, how can you end up getting on with yeah. this individual? And the answer is once you coalesced around the goal, once you had a clear view of where you wanted to get to and the steps required to get there, then actually you're working with a common purpose. Yeah. So in fact, yeah, as you said, it was a messy journey, right? And thank you for saying it. It wasn't just an easy tick the box process. It was messy and all the rest of it. But by being able to finally get to that point where you all had a common vision, it then became easier to deliver on it. Absolutely. And I think the, the key thing there from, from my point of view was, yes, you have that, that shared vision, you're working together towards it, but it's respect for the other person, understanding of where they're coming from, from that point of view. And there's no substitute for time. A lot of conversations over a protracted period where you are investing your own personal energy and, and mental effort, if you like, in building that relationship, building that rapport in whatever shape or form that takes so that you can then work together to achieve that goal. Otherwise, you, you just won't get there. And in the context of that retail business, it was the only one in RBS at the time. It was sold in 2010 for 1.8 times book, which was pretty much the only one that turned a profit. And of the people that we Amazing. get, I think we only had to make the 5% most senior management redundant in that context. Hmm. So it was a very good outcome in the end. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing the story. Yeah, really fascinating.
So Andy, let's, let's shift gears. It's really fascinating talking about, about that part of, of your life and, and that kind of really tough situation you're in. Let's kind of move forward a few years. And you joined, uh, you joined the mutual sector as CFO. And then a few years later, you were promoted to, to CEO. So perhaps just take us back into the story of those transitions. Why did you decide to move in to a different part from traditional banking into the mutual sector? And then for somebody who thought that perhaps CFO was the top job for you, for what, you know, your background as a finance specialist, uh, what changed and how did you move from CFO to CEO? What's the story behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Richard. The, I went to the mutual sector more as a case of returning from the Middle East and finding myself living in a different part of the UK, commuting into the city. It didn't really work for me. I've done six years worth of restructuring and I think I'd made myself redundant five times in those six years. And at the end of it, I said, right, on the last one of these, I am actually going to take the check. I'm not going to do any more because I've kind of, I've done enough of the restructuring type. I want something different. And at the time, I didn't take a CFO job. I worked for Nationwide for a while in cost control area. Natural transition, I guess, from doing restructuring. But part of the reason for that mm. move was, was as much personal as it was anything else and trying to find an area that was growing. And at the time, that organization was growing a lot. And I transitioned from there, getting building society experience into Leak United as a building society when I took my CFO job. And again, for personal reasons, I ended up back at Sirens Leicester Friendly, closer to where the family were, again, as a CFO role. So in a sense, I kind of bounced around the mutual sector, influenced as much by personal decisions as opposed to some kind of values-based decision of saying, this is where I want to go. However, once I'd made the shift and done that sort of initial period of, say, four years across the first two organizations, I really got a sense of what it was like to work in a mutual and how people behaved differently. It was quite subtle. Financial services is very much driven by by transactions. It's very much driven by, by people trying to drive a profitable outcome, even in a mutual. However, people looked after each other a bit better. They had a genuine sense of values. It wasn't just, right, we've all done a workshop. We're going to write some values down on a piece of paper and stick it on the wall. And this year, our values are these, which to be blunt, I've had a bit of in the banking sector in the past. Whereas for mutuals, it's sort of in the DNA. And when when people articulate the values there, it was more a case of saying, well, this is what we've been doing for a very long period of time. This is what we genuinely care about. And Mm. all they're trying to do is articulate what they care about. So that for me really resonated. And the more I lived in that environment from a working perspective, the more I felt as though that was in tune with what I valued. So, so what does that mean? Well, a mutual is owned by its members and everything you do are for the members. You don't have shareholders for those who aren't familiar with the business model. So in that sense, your customer, which a mutual would call a member, is at the core of everything that you do and what you think about and how you structure your business, how you structure your products, how you deliver those products and how you treat people. And that led me ultimately to where I am now, Siren Sester Friendly, which was the role I aspired to be, to be the CFO in in, in organization and, and to have that have that badge, if you like. But it rapidly became apparent to me that I was enjoying it a lot and I was enjoying that executive role where you're making those decisions. And the benefit of the organization being sort of 100 people, leak before was 200 people, is that you make a decision and you see it get carried out straight away and you, you see the impact of what you're doing 
not quite immediately, but almost straight away. So for me, that was really good compared to the big organizations of the hundreds of thousands plus that I had been working in before. So that's not necessarily a mutual thing. I think that's a smaller organization versus a bigger one, but a sense of value in the work that you do and a sense of satisfaction in seeing something get delivered. Of course, if it doesn't work, <laughs> you're equally accountable compared to if it does work. So that side of it, I, I enjoyed that aspect of the job. And because of that, I actually found it was that process, that decision-making and that seeing the value that you can generate quite quickly that meant it was less to do with a technical specialist job as CFO, which I'd spent all my career working towards that, chartered accountant, done an MBA, sort of built up all of that profile to become the CFO. I actually found that the finance side of it became less important to me than the people you work with and the difference that you can make. And of course, Mm. by taking on more, you can make more of that difference. So by the way that the organization was at the time in terms of the people, we had the risk director who retired. So I ended up taking on that. That demonstrated the breadth of ability in terms of the role. And then the CEO ultimately retired, who I built up a very good connection with. And absolutely, he supported me and helped me to get the ultimate the role. It was still done as a very external process. It was, you know, it was a robust process over seven months to actually achieve the CEO piece. But ultimately, I think demonstrating that I cared about mutuality and it was something that I really was passionate about and wanted to make a difference with. That's the bit that swung it compared to, for example, being up against people who would say, well, I've delivered this business or whatever, which as a finance person, you can't say that you've done. Right. From a personal perspective, it was the transition, I think, from wanting to be the technical expert in the room to actually caring more about what difference you could make in collaboration with the people that you're with that caused my mindset to say, actually, that is a job I want to do. And a little bit more than a year in, so I'm, I guess, one of your newbies in the context of this podcast, absolutely loving it and feeling as though I want to get out of bed in the morning. I want to go to work. I want to make a difference. I, I really enjoy that and I'm really enthused as to driving the business forward and helping the people around me is, is my main motivation, far more so than that technical yeah. expert that I aspired to become. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to introduce you to two transformative programs that we run. The first is Rivendell, my exclusive group of top CEOs who are committed to transforming themselves, their businesses and the world. It's an incredible peer group and a deep coaching experience that will push you to new heights, no matter how successful you've already been. The second is Impact Accelerator, a coaching program for executives who are ready to make a big leap forward in their own leadership. It's regularly described as life-changing and no other program provides such personal strategic clarity, a measurable shift in stakeholder perceptions and a world-class leadership development environment. Find out about both of these programs at xquadrant.com services. Now back to the conversation. Yeah, well, let's just go back to that because it, you might know I run a program, as you know, well, I work one-to-one -one with CEOs and entrepreneurs in the main, but I do run a program for people who are a little bit lower down in the organization, perhaps one or two levels down, helping them build the skills that they need to multiply their own impact with and beyond the organization. And within that, I have a couple of people actually, or over the years, I've had several people who have been finance experts, perhaps CFO or perhaps one level down, 
One of the questions that always comes up for them as they're looking at what's next for them, where do they go? Perhaps if they're already CFO, like, could they make it to CEO one day? These kind of questions. I think one of the challenges they always often seem to come across is this question of credibility in the exec suite, in the exec board, in the executive committee. Obviously very credible in finance, but then they kind of have this sense of, you know, I know I need to be contributing more widely to the business, you know, but I've got my finance hat and that's where people kind of see me. And so I feel I should be contributing in elsewhere, but I don't want to be stepping on people's feet by getting involved in commercial decisions or making my point of view or so forth. So I'm just wondering what your experience was in that transition period where you were broadening out your scope, although you did have the finance hat. And obviously, no, you were acting as a CEO before you were the CEO. But I'm just kind of wondering what advice, again, that you might give people who are very comfortable with their functional and technical expertise and are not sure about their voice to be a cross-functional leader. Totally recognize what you're saying, Richard, with the, that sense that you are the expert on a particular area, therefore you talk to that area and everyone perceives you as being the expert in that area, but not on anything else. I think I felt that myself in terms of, I think it is a perception because accountants by definition look at all aspects of the business. So the finance person um, tends to have a pretty rounded view, but the perception is absolutely there that this is the person you talk to on the numbers. So for me, I'm not afraid to speak out. And I think it helped in the organization knowing the people, it's that bit smaller. Um, so I would absolutely speak up on particular topics when you have a point to make. And in order to tread on people's toes, I would also, if I had a point that I thought of in advance, I would be discussing with my colleague prior to a board meeting, for example. So if you want to create that board impression on talking of subjects that is not your area of expertise, but you've got a view on it, then if you think about it in advance, you get your colleague and say, look, I'm going to say this about that. Are you OK? And you can talk about it. I think that certainly helped. For me personally, it was made easier because the retiring risk person, I took on that role. So I ended up with double hatting so I could have license to talk right. to different areas. So that definitely made it easier. And that, that was deliberately done with a view of transitioning to a CEO role. So I think demonstrating expertise or at least demonstrating gravitas in the areas that aren't finance meant that people saw you could apply yourself to other areas. And therefore, that increases your profile yeah. of a potential CEO, because you're not only the person that speaks when the numbers come up. The other thing I think that made a difference with the finance piece was I inherited a function that needed a chunk of work. It was very numbers based. It was lacking in the analysis piece. So I took the reporting from where it was to where it needed to be in terms of, and here I'm again, I'm talking board table because who are the people that are going to give you the job as the CEO? Well, it's going to end up being the nomination committee. Um, and that's going to be mainly Neds around the board table who are going to make the actual decision as to whether you get that job. So building the rapport with those individuals, getting those relationships absolutely is part of that. But demonstrating that even within your own function, you can take it from one level to another level and you can point to that progress and say, well, I can do that there. I can do that somewhere else. I can do this across the whole business. But certainly don't be afraid to speak up as well. Yeah, the, the way I like to describe that approach is, um, is you know, you've got to have, a in finance, as we're talking about here, you, I'd like to say, you know, you've got to have a financial plan, but you also need to have a plan for finance, which I think is what you're talking about there, which is how do you up-level your own organisation? 
Absolutely. And, and, and it's sort of, you, you stop almost talking about the numbers for the sake of it. And you start saying, well, this is why it's going to make a difference. And this yes. bit of the reporting matters because it's going to affect the business in this way. Or it gives you an opportunity that if we want to spend here, this is the one that's delivering value. So why don't we talk about how we can grow the business investing here? And that's mm -hmm. a very different conversation to, oh, by the way, we made X million in this bit this year. And that was good. Yeah. So tell me about that transition to the CEO piece briefly, because essentially as finance director, you have to have the very conservative. And I know probably as CEO of a mutual, you also have to be pretty conservative. But there is a kind of a risk and the, you know, the whole risk management, that control compliance piece in finance. That as a CEO, you might have a slightly more broader, slightly more aggressive view, perhaps, or ambitious view. Was that an easy transition to make, to kind of focus less on... Well, basically more on the pioneering side, shall we say, and less on the stabilizing side. Yeah, I think there's two aspects to that, I think, that I'd like to just reference. One of which was I got very heavily involved in all of the strategic conversations that were going on. And I think any CFO worth their salt should get themselves into those debates, the debates with the sales director or distribution director as, as, as in our organization. Look, speaking to those guys, speaking to the existing CEO in that context and becoming part of the team that sets what the future direction is going to be. So I did that for several years. Mm. And because of that, the transition to being more dynamic, to use your phrase, if you want, or, or, or sort of growth orientated was very natural for me because it was I've been involved in those conversations already and finance enabled those conversations right. to happen in that you say that we have this money to invest. This is where we can help to make a difference to the business. So for, for us, that was, for me rather, that was quite a smooth transition. So I didn't find that that difficult. It mm. was, in a sense, ambition affirming because I'd had the conversations and now I was leading with it. So as an integral part right. of setting that strategy, it was it was nice to then be the person that was leading with it afterwards. So I found that relatively smooth. The other part of that was then giving up, if you like, the reason that you were at the table. That's how it felt to me, which was a really strange feeling. Mm. I didn't expect it. Because I'd done finance for so long, that was the tricky one. When I'd taken on risk, it was a transitional piece. So I did that for two years. Therefore, getting a risk director in and, and handing that over was fine. But actually hiring in the CFO who then took my core competence that had made, this was the reason I was at the table and I'd worked at it for 30 years and it was my ambition to do that job, to then hand that over to someone and not get involved in the detail of those discussions. I found that really quite hard yeah. to let go. Um, mm. And I guess it is because it's your reason yeah. to be there. Yeah, it's what made you successful in the past, right? That's what I'm always saying. What made you successful in the past is if you want to play an exponential game, multiply your impact, it's going to be different in the future. And that's the challenge for us all. It's always, what's the stretch? Absolutely right. And and I think, so So having a view of what the growth is going to be and having a view of where the strategy is going to be, absolutely loved it, still love it. That's what gets me excited. Giving up the finance piece as much because the person coming in, if I was to get involved with them, I'd be treading on their toes and, and they wouldn't be able to perform in their role either. And I'd be doing them a disservice as well. So I think... Whilst I was pretty successful on that, primarily because I've hired a very good CFO and so I'm very pleased about that, letting go of it was, was quite a wrench for me personally. But a year on, don't regret it at all. So, so from that side of things, 
giving up of that and finding a new purpose, if you like. But I still, there's still a little bit of me that has the feeling of being the imposter because I'm sitting at the table and you're almost minister without portfolio, I think, as a CEO. So you've got all these people who are experts in their individual areas, just like I used to be. And all of them know more about those areas, if they're really good, than you do. Yeah. So I'm very much a subscriber from a leadership point of view that you are there to empower other people and get the best out of other people. Because if I was to sit there and say, as CEO, I know more about finance or I know more about risk or I know more about sales, number one, I'd be wrong <laughs> if they were good at what they did because they have more capacity to mm. focus on those areas. But number two, you wouldn't be getting the best out of those people anyway if you are sort of doing that kind of I'll tell you how it's done type approach. And that's not to say that you don't have to put your foot down on occasion if, if need be, but, but I'm very much of the camp that empowering those people to deliver their best means it's going to reflect on you anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Andy, yeah, thank you for those thoughts. And especially on that whole part about uh, having to let go of the thing that got you there on, got you to the table, which I think is, is a key thing for everyone in transition, especially in the CEO role. Let's move just to the future now, as we kind of wrap start to think about wrapping this up, but I want to spend some time on the potential that you see in the mutual sector and uh, yeah how you want to multiply the impact of of the business you've you've said that uh well i think when we talked before you said yeah it's a little bit it's very traditional it's, it's been established for you know 100 years as, as a way of doing business so there's great important values there a certain way of doing things and uh, yeah so what has got you excited about the potential of the mutual sector and what's that experience been like in trying to kind of ignite new areas of growth in the business yes i think for me, mutuality, I almost feel as though I've always been in mutuals, which is strange to say when I came from investment banking, but that sort of sense of the values that the organizations have, I, I think, reflect and align very closely with mine. And I've certainly heard talks of other people where they'll say they're at their best when they feel as though that alignment of your personal view of the world aligns to the organization. So I very much feel that. So that's part of it. But for me, mutuality and that that idea that your customer is basically at the heart of everything you do and is the reason that you exist and you are there to help them for me that really resonates and i think there's a wider aspect to mutuality that resonates in society at the moment i think with the struggles that people have be it the cost of living coming out of covid each of these big challenges that the whole world is kind of facing certainly the western world that side of things mutuality actually offers a different model it's not a model that's particularly well known in the uk so i'm coming at it from a uk perspective i realize you're based primarily in france and actually in france it's it's much better known and, mm. and sort of half of financial yeah. services certainly yeah. half of insurance is actually through mutuals so it, it's kind of gone away in the uk where it's more like eight nine percent um, but actually, those values, that way of behaving as a financial services institution resonates particularly with the people who've gone through those challenges, but also the mindset and the social awareness that a number of young people seem to have now, um, be it in the climate crisis or other aspects. So I think it actually resonates very well there. And we've found it, and I found it myself. When people know mutuals and they know how they operate and they deal with them, they love them. But the problem is a lot of people don't know about them. So it's how do you get that message across? I think it's a real challenge. 
So that's something I'm working as a board member of the Association of Financial Mutuals, which is the trade body for mutual insurers. Um, we're working alongside that. We've created something called the Mutual Prospectus alongside the cooperative movement and the credit unions as well, sort of collectively together to try and pitch what a difference mutuals can really make and how the sector is actually very well poised for growth, partly because they've been risk averse through the financial crisis, through some of the recent challenges, and therefore they have the resources, but they also have the right mindset and value set, I think, for today's society. And therefore we're pitching that. There's a general election coming up and uh, if the trade body does its bit alongside everybody else, then, then hopefully you will hear a bit more about that um, and what mutuals can, can offer. Um, so we will see if that works in 2024. But it's absolutely, yeah. when I bring it down to Sirencester Friendly, we're looking to grow that business and become relevant for those people as best we can because you can't rely on a product that's served people very well for 135 years if it ceases to be relevant even for the next five in this day and age. So we've absolutely invested in the technology and the infrastructure to be able to deliver something in the way that people want it. But I'm, I'm curious, what's been the biggest challenge that you've faced as you've kind of come in as CEO, established a growth plan for the business? Yeah, how have you experienced that kind of organizational alignment? Yeah, what, what I thought would be the biggest challenge would be getting people on side and getting people who've worked, you know, in some cases, a number of decades doing things in a particular way to say to those people, actually, you need to, you know, embrace the technology. You need to have real time processing. Mm -hmm. You need to be straight through. You need to be able to communicate in a particular way. I thought that would be quite a challenge to get people. And the, the reality is totally different, which is really encouraging for me is that actually the most people have embraced that. Most people are up for the change. Most people have invested their kind of heart and soul into making a difference. And it took me a while to work out, I think, that the main reason is because they aren't wedded to how things are done, whether that's traditional or not. They're more bothered about, are you doing the right thing for our members? Are you doing the right thing for the customer? And that is in the core values of how the organization works. So actually, if you say, what we're trying to do is improve the position for our members and make a more attractive mm. proposition for people. They embrace it. It's absolutely fine. Mm. So that side of it that I thought would be the biggest challenge actually wasn't. So that mm. was really encouraging. Yeah, it's a values-based, purpose-led thing, right? Because you're saying, we're going to do this, we're going to make people's lives better. Whereas potentially, if we go to a, that's a more traditional financial institution that says, we want to do this because we're going to extract some shareholder value, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. People might get out of bed bit slower for that yeah absolutely and and then you you know is this the most efficient way of doing things are we maximizing the profit and that side of things whereas if you're going from the values base it's actually an easier sell um, and people buy into it better so that side of it was great the challenge i think has been just how with limited resources how do you bring a relatively small financial institution up to speed where you're competing with the big insurers and that that's you know naturally a challenge and i think it's not even second mover advantage perhaps it's third mover advantage that this technology has been built by other people and it's become more standardized and systemized and then you can go on the cocktails of that development and say well actually we can adopt that technology at a fraction of the price because it's already been developed so innovation is certainly more of a challenge because of limited resource but actually bringing it up to speed 
the big challenge there, I think, is saying this is actually a good use of the members' money over multiple years, whereas in the past it's perhaps been, well, for the next year this makes sense, so we'll, we'll do incremental change. So shifting that incremental mindset to say, actually, we need to do something more fundamental and we're going to not quite going to have to bet the house on it, but not far off. <laughs> so getting that shift, I think, has, has been a real challenge. But, you know, I was part of the team that did that. So to be able to be still delivering on that as CEO is, is really good. And that is to our core product. You mentioned growth. So then mm. just because you've done something well for 135 years doesn't mean you're necessarily just going to keep doing that same thing. What I'm there for is looking for and what I've set out in a 2030 vision is then saying, well, how do we absolutely keep that core business and do that well, but diversify as well and add complementary business to that that is going to help the organization be of a scale that is relevant? Because in financial services, there's, you know, you have to be of a certain scale. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess that comes perhaps brings me to my last question, Andy, my favorite question, which is, uh, as you look at scaling up the the business, competing with the, the bigger guys at a different level, making being more relevant, growing the awareness of the mutual sector, all these things. What are you going to need to do yourself to multiply your own impact? So we've talked about this idea of we need to let go of things in order to embrace new things where we might not have learned all the skills yet at this point or to do things in a new way. So I call that the stretch, right? The, the personal stretch. That we have all the leadership challenges we've just, you've just outlined, all the kind of things in the market that you want to address. What's going to need to come out of you over the next year or two to make that a reality? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I know we, we've sort of touched on this in previous conversations one-to-one. -one. And for me, it's the mindset shift from that point of view. So it's to say, well, I can see I had that finance route. Then I can see the business has had that core product route. Therefore, you kind of almost have to envisage what something different looks like and then put yourself into that situation and then bring everybody along towards that vision. So for me, the personal stretch is going to be thinking about something you don't already do. Other people will be more expert in that area. Therefore, taking a bit of a leap and saying, actually, that is the right place to go and having a bit of faith to take the leap. And you've alluded to already, I think the training of chartered accountants and risk experts and other people is the opposite to that. <laughs> so it's a really me, good point, yeah. For me personally, therefore saying, right, this is a leap we wanna go for. This is something we want to embrace and make it successful. So I was just gonna jump in, it's amazing, isn't it? It's this image, I can't quite picture the image. It's something like a, it's like the other side of the coin. It's like you've been walking on this one side of this coin, <laughs> right? Which is a safe pair of hands, mastering it all, knowing it all, you know, knowing your functional, you know, knowing all the details, right? Having all the numbers to hand, uh, being the expert. And then suddenly, as you said, the, the success is gonna be on almost the other side of that coin, which is venturing into the unknown, uh, having to rely on others, for those, for those details, being able to take a leap of faith where the spreadsheets perhaps can't Absolutely. help at that moment, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's amazing, isn't it? Because it's like you have to, at some point, you literally have to get on the other side of the of the coin to keep progressing. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant example. No, I totally agree. And I think for, for me, so that's from a personal point of view of, of the mindset piece. And I think 
the interesting thing for me, having had that training as described in terms of the opposite side of the coin, is how excited I am about doing the other side and how much that is energizing me and, and making me want to, you know, go to work, put the energy in, get everybody on side and, and deliver on it. That for me is massively energizing. So I think, yeah, flip the coin, have a go. Mm. <laughs> Take the leap. Brilliant. Well, yeah, well, Andy, it's been a great conversation. Um, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, right, from from what it was like when you took on your CFO role in the Middle East to find that uh, uh, it wasn't a growth role, it was going to be a restructuring role and the sales and, and all the rest of it. Going through to your transition, what it was like to to move into the mutual sector, find it had more meaning and purpose than you, you ever thought, uh, get really into that, move up to to the uh, CEO role and we looked at some of those success factors there and and then looking at the the latent potential and the surprising outcome right really which was that people are more open to change perhaps that you might think if you actually tap into purpose and values and and explain what the big vision is right and then the final part that we've been talking about now is is yeah just the personal reinvention that really any leader probably needs to go through if their future is going to be dramatically different from their past. And it's really hard to think. I, I work with leaders all the time. We think what I need, Richard, is a better strategy or better plan or tighter plan. And normally it's not that that can be part of it, but there's this other part, right? Which is, am I going to be the leader able of able to do that plan or able to make those different decisions or feel comfortable with a new, a new area of, of operating, which has perhaps not been what's made me successful in the past. And I think we, we address that really nicely there with that example that you shared so i wanted to thank you again if people are interested in getting in touch with you or, or finding more about uh, the business uh, where should they yes they can they can that? google sirencester friendly society that'll come up uh, as a uk-based friendly or, or they're more than welcome to uh, message me so andy.morris at sirencester-friendly.co.uk get in touch thanks andy look forward to continuing our conversations it's been a pleasure uh, thank you for your input thank you very much <laughs>